Welcome to Do Theology, where we keep doctrine in its place. I'm Jeremy from Utah. And I am Ken from Indiana. Today we are excited to share with you an interview that we had with Justin Peters. It's likely that the majority of you listening to this know who Justin Peters is. He has um, a great ministry where he is able to bring about truth and discernment regarding particularly the prosperity gospel and charismatic movement, uh, that whole industry, which really is Mm -hmm. an industry. And in this conversation, we uh, talk to him about that. We talk to him about the Christian music industry as well, and we get his thoughts on repentance and what what makes a legitimate profession of faith. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah. We encourage you to, to reach out to us and share your thoughts with us about it. If it generates questions or interaction or feedback or disagreement, whatever, reach out to us. Our Twitter handle is at DoTheology. You can email the show, show at DoTheology.com. And after the music, we'll have our interview with Justin Peters. Calvinism is much false doctrine as a woman preacher. Well, of course, in fundamentalism, you define everything as a gospel issue. This is a true mark of Christian maturity to discern the difference of issues. I got an idea. Let's not one with anybody who thinks they got another idea. There's a lot of different understandings of what the days are in Genesis 1 and to what degree evolution was part of how God created things. I have disagreements with him in some areas, but those are adiaphora, those are side issues, many important issues. So many Bible doctrines are ruined when we use the wrong words. This is why it's so critical that we use only the King James Bible. You gotta have that right or get out of here. Pray God that I don't take every minor thing and make a major thing out of it. Nothing divides like truth. I respect them as brothers in the Lord with whom I have some strong differences, but they have a big problem with me. Is there a way that we can work together? I think fundamentally we have to say yes. Christians can disagree and still kick it. Today's guest is an evangelist and teacher who is a leading authority on the Word Faith Movement, seeking to expose the errors of the prosperity gospel. He has produced several resources in response to that wayward theology, including the seminar Clouds Without Water. He is the author of Do Not Hinder Them, A Biblical Examination of Childhood Conversion, and he hosts Didache, a podcast about doctrine and theology. You can find this and many more resources on his website, justinpeters.org. Justin Peters, welcome to the podcast. Jeremy and Ken, it's an honor to be with you, brothers. Sure is. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. We're reading through your uh, personal testimony on your website, which is, is it's incredible testimony. And uh, just want to read an excerpt from there uh, because uh, there's something that I think is, is, is pretty interesting and could be uh, helpful for us to explore a little bit. Uh, you wrote in that testimony, quote, I continued to hold on to the decision I made as a seven-year-old boy as the assurance I was saved. Of course, this is in relation to uh, how you came to faith in Christ. Uh, but it did not make sense to me, but it was pretty much all I had. That and the apparent success of my ministry. As the years went on, I was essentially preaching the right gospel and preached it convincingly. But looking back, the vigor with which I preached was as much to convince myself of my salvation as it was to convince others their need for the same. It was not that I was ever behind the pulpit thinking to myself, I don't believe this stuff, I'm going to preach it anyway. I did believe it on an intellectual level, but did not truly understand it. So we're just wondering if you could uh, speak to um, the role of your understanding of repentance that played into that process as, as you came to faith in Christ. Yes, Ken, absolutely. Um, yeah, of course, so my, my full testimony is written out is from what you were just reading, so people can go and read the, the full thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the big aspects of my testimony is that of repentance and exactly what that is. Uh, I was born and reared in a Southern Baptist church, went to a Southern Baptist seminary, and I I knew all the basics and I I knew that repentance was a part of salvation. But what I did not understand is exactly what repentance was. To me, there seemed to be a massive inherent contradiction within the gospel itself that I could not rectify. And that contradiction was this. On the one hand, we teach rightly that salvation is not of works. 
And that I understood. I understood that I could not help enough little old ladies across the street to earn my way into heaven. I couldn't work at a soup kitchen enough hours to earn my way into heaven. I understand, I understood that, you know, works are filthy rags. I got that. But in order to be saved, we would tell people that they had to repent, which was doing something. Uh, it seemed to be a work. And so I understood what my understanding of repentance was, is that I just had to will myself to turn away from certain sins and, you know, just kind of pull myself up by my bootstraps and just, you know, give it a good college try. And, and, uh, and I thought repentance was something that we had to do on our own. And so there seemed to be this, this massive inherent contradiction. How on the one hand, can you say that salvation is not of works, but in order to be saved, you have to repent, which was a work. And for the life of me, I could not understand how you rectified that. And uh, so uh, I would oftentimes preach the gospel, the basics, you know, of, of the gospel. But then I would go back to my hotel room, wherever I was, you know, and lay awake staring at the ceiling, worried that if I were to die, I'd go to, go to hell because I, I never had an assurance that I repented enough. And what I did not understand is that genuine repentance is a work, but it's not a work that we do. That initial repentance unto salvation is something that God does in us. It is not something that we can do on our own. We can't repent. Genuine repentance is in and of itself granted by God. God grants that initial repentance unto salvation. We see that in Acts chapter 5, uh, verse 30 through 31, Acts chapter 11, verse 17 and 18, and then again in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. All of these texts talk about repentance being granted by God. So it is a work. It's just a work of God. It's not a work that we do. It's something that God does in us. And then after that initial repentance unto salvation that God grants, then as part of our progressive sanctification that lasts throughout the rest of our lives here on earth, uh, then we do have a role to play in, in repenting and putting to death the deeds of the body, growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and all of those things. Uh, but that initial repentance, when we pass from death to life, being spiritually dead to being made alive in Christ, that initial repentance must be something that God does because we can't do it on our own. Do you, and do you, no, go ahead. Sorry. I said, do you think that there's a part of the confusion with that? Cause this, I think that's, that confusion is pretty widespread in evangelical Christianity okay. and a lot of people wrestling with the concepts of repentance. You think part of that is uh, an issue between struggling with the concept of what the word repentance means itself with the results of repentance? Yes. Uh, we've all heard, almost every evangelical knows a, a few Greek words. And uh, one, of course, would be agape, love. And uh, a lot of people know about dunamis, power. Uh, but the other one is is metanoia, which is repentance. And we hear this all the time that the word repent, metanoia, means to change your mind. And and it does mean that. That is what the word itself means, but that's not the full meaning of the term. That's not the full meaning of biblical repentance. And I tell people often, um, word studies are good, you know, to look at a word, break it down, look at its etymology and all that can be very helpful. But also look at how a word is used in its context. The the final meaning of a word is not determined by the dictionary or the lexicon. It's determined by the context of the passage and how it's used, well, who determines that? The Holy Spirit determines that because he is the one who puts these words in their appropriate context. And when you look at repentance contextually as it's used in scripture, yes, it does mean a change in mind, but it's far more than that. It, it's, a, it's a change in our mind, but it's a change in everything about us. When God grants repentance, yes, our minds are changed, but our affections are changed. Our desires are changed. We begin to love what God loves and hate what God hates. Um, 
we have a what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 7 as a godly sorrow over sin. And that's, an, that's another thing that, that I really stress in my gospel preaching now is a godly sorrow over sin. That's something that very, very few Christians understand, mm-hmm. or at least professing Christians understand, I should say. Uh, it's when we grieve over our sin because we understand that our sin grieves God. Paul talks about a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7. A, a worldly sorrow, Paul says, leads to death. A godly sorrow leads to repentance unto salvation. And a worldly sorrow is nothing more than a guilty conscience. Um, and, and I had that before my conversion. I knew I was a sinner. I didn't have any problem in acknowledging I was a sinner. But what I didn't truly have was this godly sorrow uh, where I grieved over my sin because I understood that my sin grieves God, grieves his person. And I, I tell people often that just as much as we should want a savior from hell, and we should, we should also want a savior from sin. There are a lot of people out there who want a savior from hell, but do not want a savior from sin. They want to get out of hell free card, mm-hmm. but they don't really grieve over their sin. Uh, in fact, secretly, they still love their sin. They, if they could get away with it, nobody would know about it. They would run right back to it. Um, that's a worldly sorrow leads to death. Godly sorrow is when we grieve over our sin because we understand that our sin grieves God. So uh, if you want a savior from hell, but not a savior from sin, then you have a savior from neither. Mm. And when God grants that repentance, that initial repentance unto salvation, there will be fruit in keeping with repentance. Everything about us will change. And uh, this fruit will be real. It will be tangible. It will be um, observable uh, by other people around us who know us. They'll be able to see it. And so, it's it's a lot. It's, repentance is a lot more than just okay. Yes, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. <laughs> That's you just barely scratched the surface. I mean, lost people, many lost people will acknowledge, will acknowledge that. Mm. So uh, it's far more than just a, an intellectual assent to some basic facts. Hmm. I was really surprised when I was reading uh, on your testimony that you don't believe you were truly born again until January of 2011, which to think that you've been converted uh, just a little over nine years uh, at the time of this recording. It's like, wow, that's, um, that's kind of amazing to think, to think through. But as you just described your, it seems like your understanding of what repentance is, was at the heart of your conversion mm-hmm. and you're at the heart of understanding what repentance is perhaps was your understanding of the doctrines of grace. The fact that God is the one who grants these things. Mm-hmm. Could you just maybe speak to how a person's understanding of God's sovereignty and salvation um, impacts a person's salvation? Can you even be saved without understanding the doctrines of grace? How does all of that flesh out in the Christian life? Yeah. Um, I, I tell people a lot that, uh, I, yes, you, you can, I'm not saying that all Arminians are lost or unconverted. Uh, I, I don't believe that, but I would say that if you're an Arminian, you really don't understand your own salvation. You don't understand what's been done in your life. If you're truly saved, you don't rightly understand that because when you take Arminian theology follow it out to its logical conclusion, it leads you to work salvation. It does, uh, because from the Arminian perspective, the free will perspective, you choose on your own to believe Christ. You choose to repent of sin. It's something that you do. And so, I mean, you don't have to take that very far. And it, you run into a work salvation and, well, salvation is not of works, right? Mm. Ephesians chapter 2, Isaiah 64. Um, so, so I wouldn't say that they're all lost, but they don't rightly understand their own salvation. Uh, once you understand the doctrines of grace, once you embrace the doctrines of grace, then you start seeing it all over scripture. I mean, I, I can remember so clearly just once I, once I kind of turned the corner, I suppose, and, and, uh, began to see it. And then, then it was like, here it is. Oh, it's here too. Wow. It's right on this page. And here, you know, it's like, 
How did I not see this before? It's like everywhere you look in scripture, it's all over the place. And it's, it's amazing how much more sense the Bible makes uh, once you embrace God's sovereignty and salvation and repentance. I just, it, it's so clear now. And, um, and, and I also understand that it is the most God glorifying doctrine that there is because I, I understand now that my salvation has absolutely nothing to do with me. I've, you know, I've, y'all have probably heard it said, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary in the first place. Yeah. So other than that, that's all we contributed to it, contribute to it. And so now all of the glory for our conversion, for our new life in Christ, it goes to the one to whom it rightly belongs. And that is God, not us. Hmm. And so it truly is a, uh, just a, God honoring, God glorifying doctrine. And it's, I've heard Steve Lawson referred to the doctrines of grace as the continental divide of Christian theology, mm. because, you know, where you, where you come down on that, it just as the, the waters that fall on the west side of the continental divide run into the Pacific ocean, if they fall on the east side, they run into the, either the Gulf of Mexico or the Atlantic ocean. It, 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 it really has a profound effect on every other theological issue, uh, every other doctrinal issue is just, uh, hmm. the ripple effects are so, so extensive in it, but it really brings the Bible together. And then, and then you just, like I said, you start seeing it everywhere you look. Now you established yourself in ministry as an authority on the word faith movement. Um, and this, of course, was even before your own personal conversion as you studied it and uh, researched to produce seminars and things like that to show in churches. Uh, through all those years of studying and researching and even witnessing how it plays out firsthand, have you noticed some areas within that word faith movement uh, that start out as maybe secondary doctrines or uh, secondary infractions, things that aren't blatantly heretical, but then over time, they almost inevitably lead to heresies? Or, or to put it another way, are there more acceptable disagreements that we might have with people who profess to be Christians uh, that at this time, we wouldn't label them as, as heretics because our disagreements are in, in the realm of what's accepted, perhaps, but that they are on a track that's going to head toward um, it's a certain heresy. Have you learned of any patterns like that in the Christian world where maybe those things start small and all, almost always end up in a bad place? Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's a great question, Jeremy. And I would say uh, the first thing that comes to my mind would be the charismatic issue, the charismatic question, whether or not the apostolic gifts continue to be in operation today. Uh, if you believe, for example, that the gift of tongues, the gift of interpretation of tongues, and the gift of miracles, the gift of physical healing, that these spiritual gifts are still operative in the church today, then that is, by definition, the charismatic position. And uh, even if you don't speak in tongues personally, that is the defin- that is the charismatic position. And, and it uh, seems like it's become virtuous to be someone who I'm not going to condemn others doing it. I'm going to leave it open. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And so I would say that that is not in and of itself heresy. I think it's error. I think it's very significant error, but it's not heresy. Um, all heresy is error, but not all error is heresy. Uh, you know, you're, for example, your position on eschatology, premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, various flavors within that, um, they can't all be right, right? I mean, logically, they can't all be right. And so at least some of us uh, are in error. If we don't hold to the particular right position, well, the rest of us are in error. But none of those positions are in and of themselves heretical. So the continuous position, the charismatic position, I would say is very serious error. It's not in and of itself heretical. There are genuine believers who disagree with me on this question. And they believe that all of these gifts are still operative in the church today. I strongly disagree with them, but I have fellowship with them in Christ. I fully expect to see these men in heaven. I would, in some of the names that I would include in this list would be guys like Wayne Grudem, 
and uh, John Piper. Um, Sam Storms. Uh, Sam Storms. Yeah, that's the name I was actually looking for, Sam Storms. <laughs> so, yeah, I fully expect to spend eternity with these brothers in, in heaven. Um, but that's very serious error because once you take the charismatic position, you have the camel's nose is under the tent and the rest of the camel almost always comes in. Hmm. Uh, you have started down the slippery slope from having the position of Wayne Grudem and Sam Storms. There, there's no logical or theological reason to prevent you from sliding right down into Benny Hinland. Hmm. Because once you take the charismatic position, then the sufficiency of scripture is out the window. By definition, it's gone. You cannot hold to the continuous position, charismatic position, and the sufficiency of scripture at the same time. They're mutually exclusive mm -hmm. positions. Now, they would push back on that. They would disagree, but I don't see how you can get a around it because the charismatic position allows for a God to uh, speak in a direct quotable sense outside of scripture. And if that is true, if God is still speaking outside of scripture, then whatever he says should be theoretically just as authoritative as any verse in scripture, because God cannot speak less authoritatively on one occasion than he does on another. If God is speaking, God is speaking. And so whatever he is saying should carry just as much weight as John three sixteen or Ephesians 2 or Romans 10 or, you know, any verse in scripture. So you've abandoned the sufficiency of scripture. You open yourself up to God speaking in some mysterious, mystical kind of way. And it's, you don't have to travel very far before you're right where Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland are or Joel Osteen or Joyce Meyer, you know? So, um, so that's, that's why I take such a strong stand on cessationist cessationism. Hmm. that these apostolic gifts have seen. So uh, I think that is one, one very serious error. In fact, let me, while I'm thinking about it, uh, the strange fire conference that was held back in 2013, hmm. one of the common criticisms of it was, Oh, you're just, you're painting with too broad a brush and you're lumping all charismatics in with the fringe element of the charismatic movement. You know, the tiny fringe element, that's what you're focusing on and you're painting us all in the, with that same broad brush. No, the, the fringe of the charismatic movement is not Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer. That's not the fringe. That's the mainstream of the charismatic movement. Mm -hmm. The fringe of the charismatic movement is your John Pipers and your Wayne Grudems and your Sam Storms. They're the fringe. They're the fringe. The mainstream is all of this garbage that you see on Christian television and as simple evidence for that all Christian television is, is a function of supply and demand. That's all it is. Whatever the demand is, that's what they're going to supply because they're in it to make money. Mm -hmm. So when you turn on TBN or Daystar or uh, God TV or one of these others, who do you see? You don't see Sam Storms or Wayne Gruden or John MacArthur or Steve Lawson, or any, any solid guys, who do you see? Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Jesse Duplantis, Griffalo Dollar, Joseph Prince, Andrew Womack, you know, Word of Faith, Word of Faith, New Apostolic Reformation, Bill Johnson, Bethel, all that stuff. That's what you see. Hmm. So that's the mainstream of the charismatic movement. Yeah. Um, Speaking of, uh, you just mentioned um, Bethel over there in um, so speaking of them and, and groups like Hillsong as well and, and the music that they produce, uh, yeah. some videos uh, that, that, are, um, that you made with Todd Friel have been, become quite popular online. In fact, on the, on the Wretched YouTube channel, um, that one video you did talking about how Hillsong and Bethel Music has invaded the local church, that one has become uh, one of the top three most viewed videos on their channel. Um, so what would you say to someone who you know, looks at the issue of music within the church and would try to make the argument, you know, this is really, this is a matter of conscience. This is a gray area and we really uh, shouldn't be, you know, making these hard and fast rules like this. And, and you can just do whatever songs that you you want within your local church. What would you say to someone making that kind of argument? Yeah, I, I would point out a couple of things. Um, 
Bethel and Hillsong, they are Word of Faith churches, health and wealth prosperity churches, Bethel especially, New Apostolic Reformation. And so these are false churches. They are by definition false churches. They are theological cults. And so when the Bible is not unclear about how we are to deal with false teachers, we are not to endorse them. We are not to partner with them. Uh, we are not to engage in spiritual enterprises with them. They are to be marked and avoided, Romans 16, 17. Um, I mean, there's so many warnings. In fact, 26 of the 27 books in the New Testament directly warn about false teachers and or false teaching. Only the book of Philemon has nothing to say about false doctrine or false teachers. All the other books in the New Testament do. So it's a very prominent theme in the New Testament, warning about false teachers and false doctrine. And so when we sing their music, uh, we are partnering with Bethel and Hillsong. Uh, we, are, we are using their resources. Uh, and the one of the pushbacks I hear is this. Well, yeah, some of their songs are kind of goofy and some of their songs have a real romantic flair to them, and they do. But some of their songs are okay. And you know what? They are. Some of the lyrics, you read the lyrics and you know what? That's okay. That's all right. You know, the lyrics, some of them are just fine. They would, they would pass a, a doctrinal smell test. Um, I, I would not quibble with some of, the, some of the music that they put out. The problem, though, is that when you, uh, okay, aside from the, the biblical instruction, which we can't lay aside, but just for a moment, Aside from Romans 16, 17, and 2 John 9 through 11, these clear texts about how we're going to have to nothing to do with false teachers. But on Sunday morning, when you put up a, a song on the screen in your church, and you have the lyrics from Bethel or Hillsong, and then in the bottom left-hand corner or whatever it is, and anyway, at the bottom, you see in the fine print, music by Bethel, music by Hillsong. The unsuspecting person sitting there in the pew they're looking up at the screen, reading this, and they and they read, "Oh, music by Bethel. Bethel. Hmm. I think I'll check them out. Um, Hillsong. I, I think I'll check them out. They must be okay. We're singing their music in our church, so they must be okay." And Bethel and Hillsong, and I'll throw in with that elevation music, Stephen Furtick's yeah. Goat Farm. Uh, <sighs> they use their they use their music as one of their primary evangelistic their own twisted version of evangelism evangelistic it, it, tools it's too. already popping up on people's youtube channels they're seeing it already because they advertise oh, yeah. it so much oh yeah absolutely in fact there's a video of, of bill johnson actually saying that that we use our music as a way to broaden our tent to you know expand our our brand and they use that music as a hook to pull people in to their false theology their heretical church. Um, and I'll take it a step further. And this is what I got a lot of criticism for, but I'll, I'm, I stand by it and I'll say it here. According to the CCLI regulations, you know, codes, when you sing a song in your church, that's copyrighted music, then if you're, if a church is doing what it's supposed to be doing every single time you sing one of those songs, you're supposed to send in a little bit of money to whoever produced or wrote that music. So if a church is doing things the way they should be doing, every time you sing a Hillsong song or a Bethel song or Elevation, you're sending a little bit of money to a cult, to a cult. And I gave this illustration. Let's just say, let, well, to illustrate absurdity by being absurd, let's say for whatever reason, Planned Parenthood decided to write some Christian music. Obviously, that wouldn't happen, but let's just say they did. And they'll say, you know what, we're going to write some Christian music, and we're going to make the lyrics pass a doctrinal smell test so that Christians will sing it. And every time Christians sing our song, they're going to send us a little bit of money. So if, if you're in church and they put up a, mus a song on the screen, and the lyrics, you're singing the lyrics, and look in the fine print, and you see music by Planned Parenthood, would you sing that music? Huh? None of us would. Not, not a, I, I dare say probably not a single evangelical church would sing a song, even if it's a good song, even if the lyrics are okay, would sing it if it came from Planned Parenthood. 
So here's my question. How is it any different if we do the same thing but send our money to a cult? You know, Planned Parenthood is horrific. Abortion is horrific. But Planned Parenthood is fully owned and operated by lost people. Lost people do what lost people do. Their consciences are seared. They've been given over to a depraved mind. Lost people do what lost people do. Bethel and Hillsong, they claim to be Christians, and yet they blaspheme God. They preach a different Jesus. They preach a different gospel, and they are leading millions of people to hell and doing it in the name of Christ. Which is worse? Which is worse? So. Yeah, the, those yeah, these topics get like Ken was mentioning with the views on the video. These topics grab our attention because we all have so many opinions about these things. And um, discernment ministry—I I don't know if you're comfortable taking that label <laughs> or not. Um, it's it's not one that I ascribe to myself, but uh, but, but it, I know that's how people think of me. So. Right? Yeah, yeah. And it's like the general the general term for these conversations, right? Is general uh, discernment ministry. Uh, type of conversations, and they draw a lot of attention. I I've got a a modest website, and my what my articles that are discernment related get far far more views and reads and responses than devotionals or things that I do. It's just the way it's, people are, are. I guess it's true on my YouTube channel. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've noticed it, that. Yeah. And so um, I think it's interesting because earlier this year you made a video titled A Word of Caution About Discernment. And in it, you said, don't ever get to the point where you relish in discernment ministry, where you'd be disappointed if there wasn't someone to critique. Uh, as we're talking about these discernment-related things, where have you seen that type of attitude and what's the, the most effective antidote to that type of attitude? Yeah, and unfortunately, I, I see it. I see it quite a bit. Um, some of my some of my loudest critics are actually discernment people, and uh, they, yeah, you really get the sense that if there wasn't someone to go after, they would be disappointed. And uh, they they revel in it. They they use very uh, caustic language. Um, they they fail miserably at speaking the truth in love per Ephesians 4.15. That is something that I strive to do in my ministry is follow Jude 2 through 3, but also Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. I don't do it perfectly. I, I don't claim to do it perfectly. None of us does that perfectly, but it should be the goal uh, towards which we strive to attain is speaking the truth in love. And, and some of these discernment ministries don't do that. They're, they're mean, quite honestly, they're just mm. mean. And that's not how we're supposed to be doing it. Even though a lot of what they say is, is right. There is a way to, to speak what is right. Um, and I tell people that Ephesians four fifteen, speaking the truth in love, that in love part is just as inspired and just as authoritative as the speaking the truth part. And so if you can't speak the truth in love, then don't speak the truth until you can figure out how to do it in love. Um, doing it in love does not mean watering down the truth. That's not what I'm talking about. You don't water down the truth. You don't compromise the truth. You speak the full truth, but you speak it in love. And I think I can honestly say uh, to you brothers that I would love nothing more than to wake up tomorrow morning and see where Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and uh, fill in the blank, all these false teachers, Bill Johnson and all have repented. Their, their repentance would be evidenced by them shutting down their ministries. Uh, I would love to see that. Um, I would love to see that. Uh, and I don't want any of them to go to hell. I put up another video a few weeks ago, a personal plea to Kenneth Copeland, which I, pled with him to repent because he's 83 years old now and, mm. you know, doesn't have a whole lot of life left and, and he's going to die and go to hell. I don't want him to go to hell. I, I don't want that for him. Um, so with some of these discernment guys, you get the sense that they're just, there's no compassion. Uh, they're, they're mean, they're vindictive. Um, 
and they would be disappointed if there wasn't somebody to attack. And, and that's a, a danger that we've got all that we have to, we have to guard all of ourselves against. Yeah. And, and, and sadly, I think some of these discernment ministries, um, you know, you mentioned the, the importance of speaking the truth in love and they're missing the love element. Some of them are also missing that truth element where they're not speaking factual things. Um, mm-hmm. An example of that recently you had, you, you had published a response video to service Christy, uh, Joshua Chavez on YouTube. He sought yeah. to expose you as someone who is actually supportive of the word of faith movement, <laughs> something that, you know, your ministry has always been about exposing uh, the issues of the word of faith movement. And uh, I find, you know, his videos are often divisive. They're not spoken in brotherly love. They're not pursuing love. Um, so when it comes to you know, examples like that, how do you personally discern when someone like that is is a hellbound threat to the church or merely just a misguided brother in the faith? Yeah, and uh, that's a good question because uh, some of some of them are just misguided, you know, but they're they're brothers. And I would say one of the one of the things to look for is accountability. Do these whatever particular discernment ministry you're looking at or look to see what their accountability is. Do they have a church home? And uh, with Joshua Chavez, I refuse to call him service Christie because if there was ever someone who had an improper name for himself, it would be him. Hmm. Um, he doesn't have any meaningful accountability. He, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't, you can go to his website. There's no mention of his home church. You can go to my website. I know exactly where I go to church, you know, give you the address, the website address for it. I, I have no problem uh, telling people who my accountability is. Uh, uh, my two board members are pastors and they're good friends of mine. Uh, one of them was my pastor until we moved about a year ago. So uh, look for accountability. And, and almost without exception, the angriest critics that I have, the most vociferous vocal critics I have, uh, the one thing that they have in common is they have no accountability. They will not tell you where they go to church. They will not tell you who their accountability is. Um, they're just basically lone rangers. So I would say that's one of the key things to look for. Yeah, and I appreciate your openness too. It's interesting um, in the Christian famous world <laughs> that that exists out there. Um, there are lots of guys who are closed off, and you can't get to know them. You can't get to know anything about them. You can't send them messages. You can't find their email. Any of that. Um, you've got a phone number on your website, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's that's pretty rare. Um, what what goes into to that thinking? Um, and, and maybe it is purely accountability, but why did you decide to go that route with your ministry where people can really access you? Um, if they if they want to ask you questions, you're available. Why have you done that instead of keeping all the crazy people away? <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, sometimes I wonder what I'm thinking because I do get some crazy <laughs> people. That's for sure. But, uh, you know, um, I like people. I, I like people. I, I don't have a staff. The ministry is just me and Kathy, my wife. I don't have a staff, so I don't have anyone to, um, well, I have a good friend named David Hinky. He, he, uh, maintains a ministry Facebook page and stuff like that. But, uh, but he does that just out of the, uh, kindness of his heart and, and in support of, of what I do and very, very grateful for him. But I, I don't have a paid staff. I don't have my offices in my house. So, um, but I like people. Uh, when I go to a conference, I don't, if I'm a speaker at a conference, I don't hide out in the green room. You know, I, I like to talk to people. So I'll ride around on my scooter and mingle with folks. I enjoy that. It's, uh, it's encouraging for me. So, um, I don't know. I, I don't ever want to get to the point where I'm inaccessible to people. Now that having been said, I am, a lot of times overwhelmed by the number of emails I get. I could do nothing but answer emails from sun up to sundown all day, every day, and still not be able to keep up with all my emails. Uh, so I'm not, all, I'm not able to get and respond to everybody as much as I would like to, but I do try to. 
uh, respond to people, but I'm, yeah, I, I want to have that access. I'm, I don't want to, I'm just a guy, you know, I'm a fellow do loss with you brothers. Mm-hmm. So I, there's nothing special about me. Just a, just a fellow servant of the Lord. So, Well, I, I really appreciate that about you. And um, thank you for putting up with all the people who want to talk to you. Um, that's, that's a service. So yeah. thanks. Um, and, and you mentioned conferences there as you go and, and speak at a, a variety of conferences. And when you do that, you of course rub shoulders with people who don't agree with you all the way down the line. Uh, so from, you know, this ministry that God has given you from that perspective, how do you know when you are comfortable speaking at a conference as opposed to, uh, rejecting an invitation because of some disagreements. I, and I think that's probably at the heart of where a lot of those discernment criticisms come from is this guy spoke at that conference with this person who spoke with that person. How do you an- analyze accepting or rejecting invitations? Yeah, uh, that's, that's a good question too. And, and I agree with you. One of the problems, like the Joshua Chavez guy, or I think it's actually pronounced Chavez, but um, you know, he's one of these six degrees of separation, Kevin Bacon kind of thing. If, if, if you spoke at a conference where this guy was, and he also spoke at a conference one time with this other questionable guy, and it's, then you're just as guilty as, you know, that's ridiculous. Um, uh, that, that's, that's crazy. That having been said, I am careful about the invitations that I receive. And, and there have been some that I have uh, graciously declined because of, of who I saw was going to be speaking there. In fact, there was one conference, I won't name it, um, um, but there was one conference that that I had agreed to speak at and uh, before I knew who was going to, who the other speakers were. And, and then I saw who the other speakers were and, and one or two of them, one especially, I was, I was like, oh, I, I can't <laughs> do this. And I, I, uh, I wrote an email to the organizers and I said, hey, maybe you're not aware of what this person is doing and what this person is teaching. And so I gave them a bunch of information and to their credit, they uh, said, wow, you know, we were not aware of this. You're right. And so they disinvited this person that I was uncomfortable speaking with. And um, so I went ahead and accepted the invitation. So, so uh, that was really encouraging actually to see, Uh, but I am careful. Um, You know, I, to my knowledge, I don't think I've spoken at a at a conference with someone that I would just, you know, have a real uh, objection to. So, I don't know if that answers your question. I'm well, careful. Did, just out of curiosity, do do secondary matters ever play into that, like uh, Baptist versus Presbyterian type of stuff, or, um, uh, yeah, I mean, does that ever go into your calculations? Not, not secondary. You know, I, I, I can, I have no problem speaking at a conference with some, with a, a Presbyterian. A lot of people think I'm Baptist. I'm not Baptist. I used to be, I'm just, our church now is just non-denominational. I'm, so I'm not technically a Baptist anymore, but, hmm. uh, but no, I would not have a problem with say, you know, R.C. Sproul is in heaven now, but let's just say I never met him, but say he and I were supposed to speak at a, at a conference together. I would not have a problem speaking in a conference with R.C. Sproul. I think John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul, their, their friendship modeled for us, um, you know, uh, how you can disagree on some issues, but as long as you're united in the gospel, uh, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, uh, that you can, you can still be friends, even if you disagree with each other on some secondary issues. So, so secondary issues wouldn't come into play with me and just because you're not a capital B Baptist anymore, that doesn't mean you're sprinkling babies, right? No, 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 no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just, just want to provide clarification. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. Good point. Yeah, yeah. Good catch there. No, I'm not sprinkling babies. Now, um, depending on the secondary issue, like say if I were hosting my own conference, I might be more careful about who I would invite to speak at my own conference. Uh, as opposed to who I might agree to, you know, accept an invitation at a conference where someone else is speaking there. Now, I'm not going to go. Let me let me rephrase this. If uh, if TBN 
said, hey, Justin, uh, we want you to come and host the Praise the Lord program. Uh, we want to, you know, we want you to, to come on a TVN. Sometimes people ask me, would, would you do that? Yeah, I would do it. But it would be the first and last time TVN would ever have me come. Because <laughs> yeah. what I would do is I would get up and I would rebuke them all as being the wolves that they are. So well, hopefully uh, none of the producers at TBN are hearing this. So we don't miss that opportunity. <laughs> I'd love to see that happen. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm not exactly holding my breath, staring at the phone <laughs> waiting for a call from TBN to come in. So I'm not expecting that too, too quickly, but, uh, um, uh, let's see, I got sidetracked. Was that the, what was the question again? Yeah. Get- yeah. Yeah. So you have basically just how, how much secondary uh, matters play into decisions on who you speak with and, and, our shoulder to shoulder with at a conference, um, you know, cause I, I could imagine, especially because your ministry is so focused on issues of, uh, the charismatic movement. Um, those guys that you were talking about before who you respected, it could be kind who are also continuationists. It could be kind of awkward for you to be there with them knowing that your, your ministry is best known for yeah. being against that. And that is, that is the one secondary issue that, that I would, I would personally draw a line in the sand for myself because uh, it is something that I speak and teach on so clearly and, and, uh, and passionately, and, and I do believe that I would, I would be very reticent because of the, not because I wouldn't think that these guys are brothers, but because sure. of the, I think the, the confusion that that might portray to people. Uh, I would be very leery to speak at a conference even with the so-called you know open but cautious i'd be very careful about that um so all right well uh we really do appreciate your time coming on i have one final question for you and um you know we're we desire to you know, this, this podcast and everything is, is, you know, intended to be a ministry for the local church. And I know your ministry is, is uh, very passionate about that as well. And so as we consider that, what parting encouragement will you, would you have for leaders, lay people alike within a local church as it pertains to striving to live out the unity of Christ within the local church, but people are also developing convictions and um, they're thinking through theological matters, trying to avoid the foolish controversies as they wrestle through stuff, what words of encouragement would you have for God's people? Sure, Ken. I would say a couple of things. Uh, one, I would say I get a lot of emails from people asking me, Justin, I'm uh, growing in Christ, and I, I now realize that some of the things that my church are teaching or is teaching are not biblical, and I really have concerns. They're teaching some bad stuff. They're quoting Joel Osteen. They're quoting Joseph Prince. Or, you know. Um, whatever, maybe Bill Johnson, even, uh, should I stay in the church? Cause I want to be a source of light. I want to be a source of truth. So should I stay or should I leave? I would encourage people to leave. Um, if, if you realize now you're in a, because of your own growth, you realize that you're in a, in a bad church. It is really not doing expositional preaching, not doing church discipline, not, not teaching sound doctrine, not refuting those who contradict. Don't stay in the church. You're not going to change it. You're not, I know your intentions are good, but you're not going to change it. A a congregation is not going to rise to a level of spiritual maturity above that of its leadership. It's just not going to happen. So if you're in a church that does not have biblically qualified men serving as elders, doing what elders should be doing, then you're not in a real church anyway. So leave that church. Um, That's one thing don't expect a church to be perfect because it's not going to be. And it's okay if you're in a church that maybe, you you know, there's some peripheral issues that you're not a hundred percent on board with find a church that you're on board with as much as possible. But um, there's no such thing as a, as a perfect church. Show your elder. If, if an elder, if you hear your pastor or your elder, whatever, say something that may kind of like, "Mm, I don't know show that man some respect and some deference and don't automatically start blasting him. Just if you're confused about something politely, gently ask him for clarification. I'm sure he'll be happy to. So um, I have a great deal of love and respect for our faithful shepherds out there. 
tremendous deal. There are challenges in what I do in evangelism, but I don't face the kind of challenges that a pastor faces. And so I'm, I'm so grateful for these faithful shepherds who are laboring away in the word. The vast majority of them do so in anonymity. They're not known. They're just known to their own little flocks. But these are good men, and they're rightly dividing the word of truth. And I, I love these brothers. And they're going to be at the front of the line one day, not, not guys like me. They're going to be at the front of the line one day. So, uh, so show them love. Show them respect. Pray for them. If they say something that maybe makes you kind of cock your head a little bit, just politely ask them. And uh, so, uh, you know, show them patience and deference and respect. Um, and to wrap it all up, be encouraged because it can get discouraging, honestly, as you look at the broad, visible spectrum of Christianity today, because you see so much compromise. You see so much dilution of the gospel, so, um, you know, so much pragmatism. You see so many false teachers. But you know what else? Here's what you don't always see is that because of the ministry that God has entrusted me, I have been able to preach the gospel all around the world. I think I've been in 27 different countries now and on every continent except Antarctica. And it doesn't matter where I go. There are good churches out there. There are faithful churches, faithful shepherds out there. They are all over the world. They're just not in the spotlight. You know, they, you know, your little, your little church out in the middle of Zambia somewhere that's pastors faithfully preaching the gospel and, and they're doing what a church should be doing. They're not in the spotlight. You know, they're, they're, the conferences don't talk about them, but, but they are out there. And so there are, we have brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world. We have our, our families all around the world. They're just not in the spotlight as much as some of this other stuff that, that does unfortunately get the spotlight. So God has his people everywhere. Be encouraged. Thank you, Justin Peters, for your time and for your words of encouragement and insight into these things. And we hope this is beneficial for God's people. Thank you so much. Thank you, brothers. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much.